Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Binance Podcast. My name is Weijo. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for Binance. So, what I want to do with this show is to spend time talking to specialists, entrepreneurs, scholars, influencers, basically leading people from a variety of industries. Hopefully, through these conversations, we can share insights on how blockchain is changing not just these different industries, but also in changing the world. Here's a quick disclaimer: all opinions expressed by our host and our guests on this podcast are merely their own opinions. They do not imply any endorsements or opinions of their companies. You should not take these opinions as specific investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hey, everybody! This is We back on the new, latest episode for the Binance Podcast. Today, I am super, super excited to be joined by the one and only Pomp, who basically created the moniker、uh, "Long Bitcoin Short Bankers," and nothing epitomizes that with all the stuff that's been happening in the, I would say, mainstream、uh, finance circles and mainstream、uh, U.S. policy and regulatory circles the last、uh, month. And、uh, and thanks for joining us, Pomp. Absolutely! Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm super excited about this. I just jump right in here. We've basically had the most mainstream moment for Bitcoin and for cryptocurrency as a whole last week,、uh, highlighting with multiple hearings in the U.S. Congress by basically people from old school Bitcoiners as well as、uh, Facebook people, as well as government officials, regulators from the Treasury Department, from the Fed, all speaking about cryptocurrency. For you, what's it like in the U.S.? Because I know for a lot of us here in Asia, we don't see U.S. government getting involved in it. Because for us, like for example, the Singapore government's been pretty progressive in terms of、uh, moving a lot of things along. As with some of the other Asian countries like Japan and Korea, so it's not that big of a deal for us. Whereas I think in the U.S., this is the first time that cryptocurrency has been front and center. What's it been like for you, just、uh, sort of for people in the U.S.? Yes, you have to remember. You know, Bitcoin kind of ten and a half years ago gets birthed into the world, and it was largely、uh, untalked about in what I would call the mainstream conversation of politics. So you had, you know, law enforcement agencies or even some politicians kind of talk about it、uh, tangentially or, or kind of、um, in closed door meetings, but it had never been addressed by some of the major. Uh, players in U.S. politics, and so over the last two weeks, what we've seen is、uh, first it started with、uh, Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve Chairman.、Uh, then we saw the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin come out,、uh, and then even the President Donald Trump,、um, you know, all kind of comment:、uh, some positive, some negative, some neutral.、Um, but just the fact that they're talking about this,、uh, you know, ten and a half years in, I think, is a pretty big moment. And then. When we saw the Facebook hearings themselves this past week,、um, I think that really、uh, kind of highlighted a lot for American citizens. And it, one thing that it highlighted was the lack of understanding from some regulators. Right? You know, I, I was joking with a friend, and I said,、um, if you looked at the first hearing, which was the Senate Banking Committee, it was essentially、uh, a campaign event for politicians to bash Facebook. Had nothing to do with the cryptocurrency, right? Had nothing to do with digital currency. Had everything to do with just bashing Facebook. But then, if you look at something like the House uh, Service uh, Financial Services Committee, which was the second day,、um, there was a number of congressmen who not only are proponents of Bitcoin, but they're actually、uh, very well educated and they understood the nuances. And so you saw this with them saying, you know, look, no government's going to be able to stop this thing, or 
or making the uh, the difference between Bitcoin and what they call shit coins, right? So kind of seeing the nuances between a lot of the conversation, I think the main takeaway for most American citizens is just like, this isn't going away. Um, and it's kind of now here as a main uh, topic in everyday conversation, both in politics and on mainstream media television. Does that mean that we're going to be seeing a lot more of it on television now? Because I know Bitcoin is becoming a regular thing on CNBC now, at least in the financial journalism. And we've seen your interview on Squawk Box and such. Yes. So for sure, I think it will become just a staple, right? It's kind of at this point, they're talking about it every day. Uh, They're paying attention to it. Um, It helps that, you know, the politicians and and Federal Reserve chairman, et cetera, are talking about it as well. So that kind of keeps it in the news. Um, The thing that I'm looking for is if the coverage is already pretty consistent in the mainstream press and, and, you know, things like CNBC, et cetera, then as we enter into this bull market, um, and let's say that we see, you know, $50,000 or $100,000 Bitcoin um, and then, you know, kind of the rest of the market benefiting as well. I think that we're going to get a, um, you know, kind of a fervor that will um, be hard to ignore. Uh, and, and I think that it will very closely resemble what we saw in the late 1990s uh, into 2000 with the tech boom, right? It just felt like that's all anyone was talking about. And so if you see this financial journalism go from, you know, they don't even acknowledge Bitcoin to literally they were laughing at it. Now they're pretty big proponents. Um, if it becomes kind of this really large multi-trillion dollar asset, I could see them you know, spending a, a solid amount of their time discussing it. But the thing, uh, one of the key things then is the conversations, I think, about Bitcoin. The first group of people are just be like, oh, that's just for a bunch of hackers or for a bunch of guys who sit in front of a computer who don't know what to do, who don't know what's going on in the rest of the society. And then the second is basically, oh, it's only being used for this, uh, you know, or used by criminal organizations. And then they sort of eventually come around on the technology behind it, on the use cases behind it. And I think it's just, uh, for me at least, they're just sort of like a combination of uh, seeing the, the, both the knowledge, the people who actually spent time on it, who understands it, and obviously sort of, you know, politicians being politicians. Um, but even if you look at sort of Secretary Mnuchin's points, they're pretty valid. Uh, even for like, you know, for the Fed governor, they're pretty valid in that this is an asset class that has certain values, right, for now. But at least sort of they're looking at it from their own seat, right? That that actually makes a lot of sense, at least. It's actually, there's more uh, minute details behind some of those more nuanced sort of like points. Yeah, the thing that I think caught my attention the most, right? So it's very obvious who's done the work to try to understand versus who hasn't. Right. Um, and you can just tell that by the questions they ask or the comments they make. So I think that uh, seeing that there are people trying uh, was encouraging. Whereas, you know, it's no surprise that there's plenty of people who just don't care. Um, the second thing is, uh, you know, even if you look at somebody like a Brad Sherman in California, um, he's the guy who called for the ban of Bitcoin in the U.S., right? And it kind of fell on deaf ears in the sense of he hasn't really gotten a lot of people uh, kind of behind him on that. Um, but let's not be confused. Brad Sherman understands Bitcoin better than a lot of other people, right? And what he sees is if this does become, um, you know, kind of what I think a lot of crypto enthusiasts believe it could become, uh, it could spell trouble for, um, you know, U.S. dollars, the global reserve currency, for the U.S. government, et cetera. And so I think that 
what we have to remember is just it's not a binary world. It doesn't mean if Bitcoin is uh, you know successful to, at any degree, the U.S. dollar has to fail. For example, I think they can kind of coexist. But I do think that there's people who understand, you know, I'll just call it the system or the machine uh, much better than, you know, kind of retail individuals. And they see the structural uh, threat, right? And, and so when you see that, what ends up happening, I think, is they're kind of moving to the second or third order effects. And we haven't even seen the first order effect yet, right? And, and so it's kind of they're, they're, they're so far out there with thought process that it becomes really hard for them to articulate why uh, people should be worried or, or paying attention. Whereas I think, you know, the Bitcoin community and, and just crypto in general at this point, whether it's blockchain technology, other tokens, etc., like we've all been trying so hard to explain this to people who don't understand, aren't paying attention, etc., that I think we've actually done a pretty good job of narrowing down the messaging to things that work, right? So if I said to, you know, pretty much anybody in the space, hey, explain to me, you know, what the point of all this is, there's probably four or five talking points that majority of people would, you know, touch on. And it's because we've just had time to test those different messages and see what works. And eventually, you know, a majority of the people kind of congregate around those talking points. And so we just had more time to um, kind of build our talk track, whereas these government officials haven't yet had that time. Yeah, it's been almost kind of like a crowdsourced uh, in terms of the talking points. It's sort of like you got everybody talking about it from their own perspective, but then like a sort of that diverges. But then ultimately, after all these years, they sort of all converge on these five or six talking points in terms of how the message of Bitcoin is presented to sort of the mainstream audience. And that would include sort of the financial circle, uh, the regulatory circle, and sort of the policy circle as, uh, as a whole. Uh, uh, despite all the... The additional round of FUD that was created, uh, I actually think it's like once people rationalize some of these things, it'll actually be really good sort of like a, as a big, um, I would say, turning point. Yeah. The, the other thing that I would say, too, is like when you are a government official in a single country, you only have the lens of that country, right? Your job is literally to govern a single portion of the world's population. I think with crypto, what we've been able to see is, you know, somebody in the United States like myself can learn from people in whether it's an Asian country, Latin America, Africa, Europe, et cetera, and vice versa. And so we get a much more global perspective on not only how this technology is being applied or, or used across the world, but then also how it's being received by regulators. And so when you start to kind of, um, you know, crowdsource, if you will, these different uh, knowledge sets and, and, and uh, different experiences, it just, you know, math and uh, the academic studies show that crowdsourcing information is usually going to beat any other method. And so I do think that we have a really big information advantage. Um, but again, if you look at people who are being successful around the world in building companies uh, or building protocols or tokens, they're people who are saying, we are going to work in some capacity with the legacy system, whether it's simple, just KYC AML, whether it's saying, you know, we'll actually comply with securities laws, whatever it is, um, people around the world in whatever jurisdiction they choose to uh, operate in, the, those that say that they will work with legacy system are thriving, right? There's plenty of people who just say, look, I'm not gonna follow the rules, right? And I think that the rules are dumb. I think that the jury's out on how successful that's gonna be, but, but I do think that um, you know, the, the crypto entrepreneur, if you will, 
understands a much more global world and is willing to leverage different geographies, um, jurisdictions, uh, and different technologies to their advantage. So yeah, I mean, that's a really, uh, for my business, for our business, it uh, couldn't be even more true in terms of, it's a big world out there. <laughs> There's about six billion people around the world. And this is something that's actually applicable to, to all of them, just depending on the use case. So that, that's really interesting. I, I want to ju jump topic a little bit. You're kind of like a celebrity in the circle based on sort of, um, you know, your Twitter followings and then your, your persistent uh, long Bitcoin message through the depth of crypto hell, through the depth of the crypto winter in December last year. You know, with your podcast now, probably what I think is the, the best and the number one podcast in the crypto circle. When did you start your journey to this? Yeah, so in 2014 um, was the first time I ever heard about Bitcoin while I was working at a Facebook. Um, didn't do anything with it, uh, but, but had heard about it and frankly thought it was a pretty uh, radical idea, um, but just low probability of being successful. Right. Uh, and then in 2016, um, started to hear about it again uh, while I was investing um, and, and just, uh, you know, hearing different people talk about building Bitcoin companies or blockchain technology, et cetera. Uh, and, and so um, into uh, 2016, um, really started kind of looking at the technology. Uh, had a uh, one guy, uh, John Paul Barrick, who's a, a young kid who basically, you know, really sat me down. I was like, hey, this is real. You got to pay attention to this. Um, and, and where we ended up, uh, my partner and I, is we started to build uh, mining facilities, right? And these aren't kind of the really large um, kind of commercial facilities. They were more, um, I think we started with like uh, 50 miners, right? Um, and, and then eventually kind of grew from there. But what we realized was, um, starting there was a great place because one, you actually understand how the blockchain works. You understand the reward, you understand difficulty, like all of the, um, kind of core fundamentals of the asset. Uh, you're forced to understand that because that's the business. Uh, the second thing is as you are building, um, a mining facility, you've got to figure out a bunch of infrastructure. So you start to figure out, you know, what wallet do we want to deposit, uh, the Bitcoin or, uh, ether in. What exchange do we want to use, right? And kind of walking through the whole process. And what we realized was it was so early. Like you could just send an email or call and, you know, you might get the founder on the phone, right? Or, or have, um, you know, respond to an email. And so when we saw that, we said, look, these are actual like real companies with real revenue that, you know, if this becomes a thing, there's going to be a ton of value created here. Rather than us invest across all these different industries that we were doing at the time, why don't we just go focus specifically on this? Because we have really strong conviction that this is going to happen uh, and we want to be a part of it. And so um, in uh, 2017, we kind of shed every other thing that we were doing and went full on into uh, into crypto only and haven't looked back since. So that's your professional career at Morgan Creek. When did you start being active on Twitter then? Yeah, so uh, my, my girlfriend likes to give me a hard time that uh, in 2016 when we met, she actually had more Twitter followers than I had. Um, and so in, uh, in uh, 2017 was really, um, you know, I, I've always had this uh, idea that um, it's just a single phrase. Audience is the new currency, right? And so when you have uh, large audiences on different platforms, you have a lot of leverage, right? And, and it helps you or, or those around you uh, accomplish things. And so, you know, I, I really started to uh, become um, focused on how do you grow these audiences. Now, I had a, a significant advantage in that I had 
run a number of growth teams at Facebook. And so I understood, you know, how some of these algorithms were built. I understood some of the network effects, right? I understood how content kind of permeates through the networks, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I didn't come at it, you know, completely blind. Um, but, but really it was just a lot of testing, right? It was kind of, you know, tweak 20 things and see one thing took off and kind of, you know, just look at it and say, you know, why did this take off? Was it the content? Was it the structure? You know, all these different things. And it wasn't like I had a spreadsheet and was being like overly analytical, but it was just more of, you know, I would definitely. But you don't have a team. You don't have an agency. You're just all you. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it was just. It was just me kind of looking at it and, you know, in the back of my head, right? So let's say I tweeted something and it, it you know, uh, got a lot more engagement than everything else, or it seemed to at least. I would just kind of put in the back of my head like, hey, you know, that structure of a tweet um, did well, right? And then I tested again a couple of days later. And, and the big secret, I think, to Twitter, especially then, and it's still true today, is just, um, you know, two things. It was one, staying on message. So you don't see me tweet about a bunch of other stuff, right? It's not like me, um, hey, here's a picture of me at a restaurant. Okay, hey, now I'm talking about politics. Now I'm talking about sports. You know, it's just, I talk about Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain, et cetera, right? Like that is it. And I think people know that if you follow my account, that's what you're going to get, right? So staying on message. And the second thing is, uh, it's a high uh, amount of content, right? So I'm constantly tweeting things and, and um, you know, just kind of pushing that content out there. And what, the, what it does is the algorithm rewards you for high content output, right? So the more content you create, the more content it has to potentially put in other people's feeds. And so I just understood that early on and, and really kind of used that to my advantage. Now the, the flip side of that is I've got this huge audience that's highly engaged and, you know, I, I've gotten a crash course in kind of the responsibility of this, right? You know, if I go and I tweet something crazy that ends up being inaccurate, um, it can do a lot of damage. And, and so I've really had to um, think through kind of what am I tweeting? What is the potential effects of this? Is, you know, am I 100% uh, confident that it's accurate? Um, I even sometimes before I tweet something, will show it to somebody who's like standing next to me. Um, just for them to check the grammar and the structure of the sentence, all that kind of stuff. To, again, try to um, you know decrease the mistakes, frankly, uh, because you're you know sending a message to you know a couple hundred thousand people at this point. Absolutely. Where did you come up with the long Bitcoin short banker lo uh, moniker? I think that that's absolutely <laughs> absolutely taking off, especially like absolutely. I think I think that that'll be forever etched as like one of the top ten phrases in uh, in our industry. <laughs> Move definitely number one in, yeah. my, in, in my book right now. Yeah. So I think what I would say is, uh, you know, as I was tweeting all this stuff, uh, I just kind of think in terms of like short catchy phrases to begin with. Um, and so I would tweet all kinds of stuff. There was things like, um, you know, tokenize the world, uh, the virus is spreading long Bitcoin, short, the bankers, all this stuff. And, um, really they came out of, uh, I would tweet a whole bunch of these phrases and it was very obvious, uh, from day one, the first time I ever tweeted long Bitcoin, short, the bankers, it exploded. Like people just, gravitated towards it. So I tweeted it again and then again and again. And next thing I knew, um, you know, people would come up to me at like a conference and they'd be like, Hey man, long Bitcoin short the bankers. And I was like, that is incredible that that one sentence 
kind of resonates with people so well. And I think it's twofold, right? One of it is just like a positive affirmation of a person's belief in uh, Bitcoin itself. And then it's also, uh, you know, a comment on kind of the lack of uh, efficacy of the legacy system. And so when you kind of put those two things together, you know, you, you get kind of what we've seen, which is this uh, this phrase that I think has kind of captured the imagination of a bunch of people. And nothing captures it like the poor guy in the Deutsche Bank picture with a Bitcoin bag. <laughs> Incredible. Like, and I even read that uh, that guy is supposedly, um, he's not even a Deutsche Bank employee. He was like the tailor who showed up uh, and just happened to be walking by. But I think that even if he wasn't an employee, the fact that people, you know, again, just promoted and gravitated towards this image of somebody carrying a bag that says Bitcoin on it next to a failing financial institution, it's like perfect content, right? And if you go all the way back to the message in the first uh, block um, of Bitcoin uh, around the, you know, the, the uh, second bailout of the banks, uh, all the way to something like that. It's just that we know that some of the least trusted brands and least favorite brands in the world are financial institutions from the legacy system. And so I think that what we're seeing here is we're seeing the rebuilding of a lot of that infrastructure in a decentralized digital world on a global basis. And, you know, frankly, look, it, the secret is I get excited, right? I, when I think about it, I'm like, look, this is awesome that we get to be alive today in this moment going through this. And so I think that whether it's, um, you know, content or, or just even you and I talking, the enthusiasm shows through and other people get excited, right? I think what's really exciting is that if you look at sort of the, I would say something that you and I probably experienced is actually probably the dot-com boom, which is the late, late 90s all the way, I think, to today, right? Where the opportunity, I think, in tech I mean, tech world is almost as monopolized as the banking world now, right? With sort of the like Facebook, Amazon, Google owning everything. And then in Asia, you have Alibaba, Tencent and some of the internet giants uh, owning pretty much everything in China. And then in, you know, Japan, Korea, sort of similar effect. So, so, so sort of for like, for people to looking for the, sort of the next breakthrough, for people to move up the social class and move up the wealth class, we basically have to look for new things. What the beauty of crypto is that a lot of it, uh, is not specific just to tech. Because if you look at sort of some of the successful companies, it's not just that they have the best blockchain or have the best protocol, it's actually they have the best tokenized system. And that's where people from finance, actually, we can actually add value. <laughs> For sure. Look, you know, what, what we're seeing here is, at the end of the day, this is all automation. Whether we're automating, you know, financial transactions, whether we're automating supply chain, uh, automating just money, the actual unit of account, um, you know, we're, we're really seeing the digitization and automation of uh, pretty much every sector. And so I joke all the time that um, I think it's Mark Andreessen's famous for uh, this PC road that says software is eating the world, right? I think now what we're seeing is um, that these blockchains are eating the world, but they're doing it in very nuanced ways today. We haven't yet uh, got to the point where um, they're completely pervasive across industries and every player but I think we'll eventually get there. That's something that I think is um, is quite interesting because you need a confluence of things. Like you need knowledge, you need money, 
Um, but you also need the right uh, infrastructure and the right regulatory stuff for a lot of these sort of like magic to happen. And that goes to sort of like to my last point in terms of I know, I, you know, I've been a faithful listener of your podcast and I know you think that Facebook is going to be the most you know, influential company in the sort of the crypto circle. Has that changed in, t- in your mind? The reason why, and I think what you're referring to is like, I usually ask people what they think the most important company in crypto is. And for the last, I don't know, three, four months, uh, maybe even longer than that, uh, I've been saying Facebook. And really the thought process was uh, they've got 2 billion users. Whatever they launch is going to be important because it's going to be the first time that those, you know, let's call it 1.8 billion of the 2 billion interact with crypto, blockchain, et cetera. It's going to be through whatever Facebook launches. I think that, um, you know, Facebook already accomplished more than pretty much any other company did simply by getting the Senate and Congress hearings in the U.S., forcing the president, the treasury secretary, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, et cetera, all of the the, um, attention that we're seeing right now on um, Libra, Bitcoin, Calibra, other cryptos, et cetera, is all because Facebook decided to step in the ring, right? And, And so- you know, there's a question now of what are they going to be able to launch, when, how long is it going to take, what jurisdictions, right? There's a lot of questions around this project, but I think that simply announcing they were going to do it has been a massive catalyst for the industry uh, and one that we're going to look back on as like this inflection point um, where we went from, uh, I joked and I said like from basically from the basements to the halls of Congress, right? And, and I think that's a really, really positive for the long-term health of the industry. I actually absolutely agree with you. I think the reach that Facebook has, I think most people sort of see Facebook as is from the US sort of framework or from whatever, but their ability to reach and impact people around the world, their ability to shape democracies around the world, to shape uh, news and events around the world is unprecedented, I think. So I definitely agree that that they, like whatever they do is going to move the ticker significantly. It's going to move the odometer, I think, for us as well. That's all we have time for for today. For us, you know, we're really, really happy to have you as a friend of Binance. And we definitely look forward to having you back on the podcast. Absolutely. Listen, you guys continue to execute better than uh, pretty much anyone else in this industry. So uh, I'm cheering you on. I appreciate you having me uh, come on the podcast. and We'll definitely do it again. Thanks. Thanks, Pop. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview as, as much as I did. If you like this show, please share this episode on Twitter, Facebook, Telegram, WeChat, or any other social media platforms. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Binance Podcast and see you next time.